Hey you, welcome to Tea Talk, a space to share the therapy tea. I'm Shailene, your host, and I hope you'll join me each week as we sit down to share tips, stories, and conversations on getting better emotionally, recovering from trauma, and improving your overall quality of life. I want to remind everyone that even though podcasts can feel therapeutic, they are definitely not a replacement for therapy. Please, at any point, if you feel the need to take a break because the content is too heavy, please do that and take care of yourself. Also, if you're loving this podcast, please do me a favor and leave me a review, share your reflections with me on Instagram and share it with a friend who needs to hear it. All right. So I'm ready. You're ready. And we're friends now. So go ahead and sit down, cozy up, and let's get ready for today's episode. Okay, I'm here with my guest this week, Christina Kosla, an educator, theater artist, and accidental rare disease advocate. Her performance and directorial work have been seen in diverse venues such as the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., the Edinburgh Festival Fringe in Edinburgh, Scotland, and jazz festivals in Tuscany. Since her diagnosis with a desmoid tumor in 2018, she's raised over $32,000 for the Desmoid Tumor Research Foundation. She chronicles her treatment and adventures on her blog and Instagram account, Girl Meets Cancer, and she lives in New Jersey with her dog, Daisy. Christina, thanks so much for coming on the show this morning. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm really excited to chat with you this morning. I'm grateful to be here. Just right before we started recording, I was telling Christina just about some recent experiences that I've had that um, I know she can relate to because she shares so much on her Instagram account, Girl Meets Cancer. We'll put all of that stuff in the show notes. And what I've appreciated for someone from the outside, number one, is learning a lot from your account and also just being able to feel like I can share in some of the shit that you're going through, which is absolutely just like maddening and really frustrating. All of the stuff that comes with someone who is going through a cancer diagnosis and then having to deal with the like sequelae of being a person who relies on the medical system in this country, which can be incredibly freaking frustrating. Um, So yeah, thank you for coming on today and being willing to share all of these things. Christina and I met in 2016, 2017. That's what I was thinking, 2016. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, back at a yoga retreat with Yoga Bohemia, which was just so amazing. And not long after that, well, we connected through Facebook and all of that other stuff. And then not long after that, 2018 was you got your diagnosis. Can you tell us like starting from that point, a little bit about your story. Yeah. So actually, I it's funny. I think that my diagnosis really started in the yoga studio, which is mm. not a common place for people to learn that something's wrong with their body. Or maybe it is if you know your body quite well. I couldn't hold my handstands as long as I was holding them before, which sounds like such a small little like, mm. you know, woe is me, you know, mm-hmm. ailment. So I would back off and I would try to go back again, but this persistent kind of weakness in my right side, a pinching in my right shoulder came back. I saw a physical therapist who told me that it was likely impingement. She gave me some exercises to do. And then I realized that it wasn't quite going away. And it was when a coworker said, you look swollen by your collarbone. I really want you to get that checked out that I was really compelled to action. I think it sometimes takes someone outside of ourselves to recognize a change that for us we see daily. And I love and trust her. And so someone to say, 
I want you to get this checked out was pivotal for me. I no longer was just beholden to myself. And uh, I wanted to do this also to put my friend at ease. So I'm forever grateful for her for saying that. I was about to go on a really incredible trip. I had set aside five weeks to do the Camino de Santiago, uh, the religious pilgrimage from France to Spain. So I was able to get in for some imaging before I left, was told that it was fine that I leave, that I could deal with it when I was back, that it looked like a lipoma, which is a fatty mass that is non-cancerous and quite common. So when I got back from the Camino, I had a surgery and actually we're coming up on the five-year anniversary. It was on September 30th. I went in and the surgery took hours as compared to like the hour and change it was supposed to take. And when I came to, and when my mom was with me in recovery, my mom asked the surgeon, well, doc, how'd she do? And he said, well, it was confusing. And <sighs> confusing is Definitely not the word. No, thank you. No, thank you. What the? Oh my God. It's like starts with those little things. Yeah. And <sighs> that was kind of my first exposure to having my experiences really minimalized. Like mm. that choice of word was very careless in uh-huh. my opinion because it set me on edge. And when when folks come out of anesthesia, they're likely to have, you know, not be themselves completely. So I came out and even before this doctor had made this comment, I was trying to leave. <laughs> it was taking like three people to like hold me back in this recovery chair. And later on, I followed up with him and he determined that everything was fine. There's likely a lipoma somewhere, but it was inconclusive. And he said, well, I'm not sure if you remember all of it because you were pretty upset. And again, the diminishing of my own challenges and fears was so infuriating. So this was in October of 2017. And I then started bouncing from doctor to doctor, trying to have somebody take me seriously. And I often tell the story of going to a another orthopedic surgeon that was recommended by my family. He's like, done my dad's knee and my brother's knee. And he's a really great person. But I broke down in tears and I'm just sobbing in his office. And this this guy doesn't really know me. And he said, you know, why are you crying? And he was really kind of confused. And like, I just responded. I said, because something's wrong with my body and nobody can tell me what it is. Yeah. And... So as you were mentioning earlier, the medical system is really complicated and sets folks up for failure from the start. And I was considering not pursuing it any further because, you know, I was, I was still paying off this surgery. I was looking at all of these copays and, and imaging testing fees. And I, I, for whatever reason, kept pushing. And I'm so glad that I did just because I wanted an answer at that point. I wanted to have something concrete to point to. And I ended up in a thoracic surgeon's office uh, affiliated with a major university hospital. And that was in February of 20 or January, I'm sorry, January 30th of 2018. And he said, you know, this is really suspicious for a sarcoma. And he kept talking. And I was like, wait, 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 can you back up? Like, sarcoma, are you saying that I have cancer? And he said, well, we have to do some testing, but I look at these kinds of scans every day and it's extremely likely that you have a sarcoma. So uh, my world flipped upside down. And and you kind of ways, find out in passing, like that comment, yeah. you know, you weren't sat down. And, and I guess that's what 
I had always thought that would be like, and I have had a couple people in my life have cancer as well. And I have always been so shocked. I mean, on the one hand, this is, you know, they have whole offices and hospitals dedicated to cancer. So I get that they do this every day. And at the other hand, you know, this is somebody's entire world getting flipped upside down. And so to just casually, yep, you have can yep, looks like cancer. And so we're going to have to figure, and you're over there kind of, I would imagine completely at a loss, like, wait, hold on, the whole world just stopped. That's exactly it. And at that point, we were working with an unofficial diagnosis of a hematoma caused by surgery. And hematomas are quite common. So I thought that this was going to be more of uh, maybe a quick procedural fix. I am so fortunate that my mom and her, you know, incredible maternal wisdom and gut feeling was like, you know, I'm going to come to this appointment with you just to make sure sometimes it's great to have another pair of ears there. And she was so right. So like I, he said that and I excused myself from the room and I went into the bathroom and I, 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 the tears wouldn't come, but there was this like rage and everything that I had felt for so long. And I just wailed. And, you know, it was kind of like a, like a primal howl almost. And while I was in the bathroom, the nurse practitioner was giving my mom a folder of, uh, information about like, this is, you know, we have to move quickly from here. It is very important because statistically sarcomas are very deadly and you're going to need, she's going to need another biopsy. We're going to confirm the original biopsy slides. We're going to get another MRI and just giving her business cards and, and information. So I walked back into the room and I suddenly felt very much um, like a child again, you know, having my mom there taking care of it. And I'm so grateful, but I was no longer a person who viewed herself as in control of her life. And it was a major shift in power for me. Yeah. Oh my God. Just so many different feelings coming up for me, even hearing this story in this way. It's, um, it's just really, really frustrating the way that it comes to be. Um, and the, like you're talking about the grief that comes with the change. You're talking about the loss of power, but I know there was a post that you made once that stuck with me that was like, I'll always know my life like before the diagnosis and after the diagnosis and how much that's really changed. And just the, I don't know, like the innocence and the freedom that comes with being able to go into the day without having to worry about such a big sickness and the fear that's associated with that. It's a lot. It's a huge change. And it's, I just feel so sorry that you went through hearing like the cancer's bad enough. And then all of the experience that comes along with that is like the second arrow that gets shot. Yeah. I, I have so many notes for improvement. If somebody wants to call me, you know, I'm happy to advise. Or <laughs> Make consult. some recommendations. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, of course, compensate me for my time. I've got medical <laughs> yes. Bills, but um, I, I will say that from that point on, once you have this label of something that could be really serious, for the most part, I was treated with a, a much greater respect and, and I credit a lot of that for then moving to university level healthcare mm-hmm. at a major teaching hospital. And more often than not, the folks who have given me the most, uh, brusque lack of understanding or, or not willingness to learn have been folks who are really unfamiliar with the depth of the experience or the diagnosis sure. itself. 
So I was then connected to an amazing team at Penn that continues to be my care team. And thank goodness for that because uh, so many other patients I know are in areas of the country where they need to travel hours and hours to find support or they can't find a specialist. And I'm able to drive an hour and, and to see a doctor who really understands me and my diagnosis in equal part. So me yeah. as a human being and what I prefer my, the way that I'm spoken to. And he understands my priorities in terms of treatment. And so it's, there has been a remarkable shift because I'm finally at a place that values patient input, but it continues to be quite honestly, a daily struggle. You know, there isn't a day that I'm not following up on paperwork or messaging with a care team member. Yeah, it's a lot. I'm curious about the specific type of cancer that you have and the specific type of tumor. It's quite rare. Yeah, exactly. So it's called a desmoid tumor. The full, I guess, uh, proper scientific diagnosis is desmoid type fibromatosis. And for a long time, these tumors were not understood. So from what I can recall, the earliest kind of documentation of these was in the 1800s, but most likely they have been around for much longer. It's just because we didn't have the science to really get a specific type on this. So they are a type of sarcoma, uh, which is a rare soft tissue cancer. They can occur anywhere in the body. And statistically, though we're not sure about misdiagnosis, as you know, myself and many other patients have gone through, they occur in between like two to three people in a million. So like 900 people in the United States each year. Wow. And in my mom's words, like you couldn't have won the lottery. Like these are the I odds. Know. You what the hell? Oh my gosh. Like this is my luck here. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. My goodness. Yeah. And, and I think because they are so rare, that's what took. Uh, and because I appeared so healthy otherwise. That's what delayed my proper diagnosis. you're young and you do yoga and you probably eat great. What do you mean you have cancer? (laughs) Tell me about that conversation that I imagine has come up a lot. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That thoracic surgeon that I saw frequently worked with lung cancer patients and folks who had been smoking for extended periods of time. And here I am, you know, a non-smoking vegetarian yoga teacher who is just floored by this because there's also no family history of cancer on either side of my family. So not only was I going through this for the first time, but in essence, you know, so were my parents and even my grandparents. And the shock that came with it, because, you know, why didn't this show up in my blood work that I'd had done? Or why, you know, kind of the the anger of, well, why wasn't I taken seriously when I said, this is not surgical swelling. This this thing is bigger now that I've had this surgery. As you mentioned before, it really split my my life in half. And there was a great deal of denial that I think is really healthy in the beginning because it protects us from sure. feeling all of those emotions. I've heard it said that if we remembered the birth experience of when we were born, you know, it would be so traumatic. And and that's why like the brain protects itself. Yeah. I mean, I've blocked that out and I'm, I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember yeah. enough to still, I think, be a mom of a single only child, but <laughs> that does. Yeah, you're right. Our brain totally protects us from things that are incredibly painful and hard to process. So that way we can keep doing life and keep surviving. Yeah. And I had two weeks 
between my biopsy and my confirmed diagnosis. And I was teaching at an elementary school at the time. And I went to work every day. And I was just waiting to find out what type of cancer is this? And quite honestly, what kind of time do I have left? Mm. Is this, am, am I so far gone that I need to hurry up and do all the things that I want to do now? But also my students need to be taught. I have lesson plans that I, I want to cover. And th- there's this really hard limbo where folks who were familiar with the situation would say, well, it could be nothing. And, and even though I already felt that something had happened, even, you know, this, this shift in my life had occurred, whether I wanted to claim it as my own or not. I felt myself take a really deep breath when you said I was wanting to know how much time I had. What have those conversations been like? Like, in, in the type of cancer that you have and the prognosis that's there without having a lot of research, you know, what answers do you have around that? So I am really fortunate in that um, desmoid tumors, because they occur in very different places in the body, and because they are, they're classified as an intermediate grade soft tissue sarcoma, so they metastasize locally but they don't typically move through things like the lymph nodes or the bloodstream. So I really had to worry about this one tumor. And it is quite large, but, you know, our immediate goal was to contain it. And in the, you know, almost five years since, you know, spoiler alert, I'm still here. (laughs) And we have been able to relatively control the size after a lot of trial and error. But other desmoid patients who have had their tumors in more life-threatening places, for example, um, in the neck, in different parts of the face and head, or wrapped around, you know, essential organs in the midline of the body, they have not been as fortunate. So with these tumors, because each of them, you know, the diagnosis is so rare, and then even further, each is so unique in terms of placement of the body and how folks respond to treatment, it can really range. So I am so lucky that I, you know, I, I think birthdays and the passage of time and getting older is something that's so fraught in society. And I, you know, I still struggle with that, but still being here like that, that's something that I can claim as, <laughs> as my own victory and something I'm grateful for. Yeah. How do you, I'm curious in days where you're not on the side of I'm here and this is great and that's so grateful. What does the other side look like? Because I would imagine. It's for, I mean, I can just imagine for anyone who's struggling, even with no relevant diagnosis or anything on a day to day, I can just be walking around and I'm like, oh shit, we're all going to die at some point. Like that, Mm -hmm. that in itself will cause panic and anxiety. And so spoiler alert in the sense that like, we're all going to die at some point and we never know when that's one thing to really mess with you. But then to have a, to be linked with what is generally a terminal illness that messes with you in a different way, I have to imagine. I'm curious about the days that are not in the side of, I'm feeling grateful that I'm still here. What do those days look like for you? And how do you get through them? Thank you so much for asking that. Because I, I feel like even if we had this interview set aside on another day, even you know a few weeks ago, 
my response could have varied, right? Sure. Like we, we want to hold on to that. Like I am alive and I am here, but truthfully, I think that I've only arrived at that place more recently in my experience because it's been living with cancer, living with this diagnosis now for four and a half, almost five years. On the harder days, I absolutely give myself time to grieve. And I think that's so important. I think that if we tried to blow past it, we'd be doing ourselves a disservice. And often I'll say, okay, I'm going to give myself until 12 o'clock noon to really to sit in bed and to cry, to, you know, maybe look at videos of uh, puppies and babies, (laughs) um, you know, kind of pulling into like every sort of method I know to care for myself Mm -hmm. and really saying like, okay, this is a bit of like an SOS moment. And Mm -hmm. I, what are the things that have helped me in the past? And then I take my dog for a walk or, or then I make myself a breakfast and, and find comfort, you know, in those smaller things that are also a part of my, of my daily routine. I would be dishonest in if I didn't include the fact that, you know, the pandemic affected is affecting so many people in so many different ways. And that absolutely took a challenging situation and made it exponentially harder. And so reflecting on the last few years, I am so grateful for science. I'm so grateful for the fact that I, you know, I just received the most recent bivalent booster, which gave me a level of hope and a level of comfort in seeing an extended group of people again indoors. And so COVID really reframed for me and is reframing for me what comfort can look like, because I think it took a situation in which I thought I had reached kind of rock bottom. And then we had this collective rock bottom. It's like, oh, no, it can get worse. You think it's absolutely (laughs) (laughs) you have a unique cancer. And now you're going to live through a pandemic. Like, yeah, if you think there's no floor, keep going. (laughs) And it was so brutal, you know, and I, I, you know, in a lot of ways would get angry because folks were saying like, you know, I'm just like, I'm just so worried, you know, about this day to day and my life just flipped upside down. And in the moments where I was not able to access my empathy, I was like, well, yeah, tell me about it. I've Welcome been living this life. way. Yeah. yeah, I've been living this way for years now, folks. Mm-hmm. And so in those moments, it was really important for me to lean on other members of the cancer community who understood the challenges. And, you know, I was coming out of a year of really intense IV chemo. And, uh, I live alone. So I was a bubble of one for a year. And I can tell you of two instances of human touch that were not connected to MRIs or blood work. And that was when my friend's daughter hugged me at the knees and my friend looked horrified. And I was like, no, you know what? It's okay. I'm, I'm welcoming this because I need it. Yeah. And then one really amazing doctor, I went in for an appointment and I told her how hard it was. And before I had a chance to really respond or react at the end of the appointment, she leaned in and gave me this really strong hug. And I, I, I welled up with tears and I was like, wow, she really sees me. She really understands this challenge. And so a full year and change after beginning to isolate by myself and spending 
Thanksgiving alone and Christmas alone, uh, my birthday alone, I got to see my best friend who is a doctor. And so he had received the vaccine and I got a hug and my God, like hugs are so essential. Human touch is so essential. Community is essential. And yes, I'm grateful for the online community. I'm grateful for technology but there's nothing that replaces um, in-person community because that's where we find healing. You know, that's where we make sense about ourselves and others. So I will say that I do feel like I'm, I'm coming, I'm lifting out of that to a certain extent. I, you know, I, I have a track record of making it through those really hard days. And I, I used to say after doing the Camino, like nothing is as hard as climbing the Pyrenees, right? Like it will never be as hard as that one day I did that. And I look back and I was like, you know, I don't think anything will ever be as hard as Christmas 2020 was for me. And so also recognizing that that was my personal challenge and I managed to get through it. Yeah, that's that's helpful. I'm hearing so many things. I The type of therapy that I specialize in is DBT and DBT does a really great job of taking things that we do to cope and to tolerate and to thrive and package them into different kind of skills. And so I'm hearing a lot of those as you talk. One of them is not officially one, more of like a trauma survival skill containment. Like I'm going to allow myself the time to be sad and to grieve and to be in pain, but I'm cutting myself off at like 12 o'clock. And then I'm going to watch videos of puppies and babies and cutesy things, which is really like self-soothing and emotion regulation. Knowing what is helpful for you. I mean, there's a lot of mindfulness and awareness that comes in knowing I need hugs and I need community. I mean, this is for humans in general, even if you think that you don't, this is the way that humans are born as pack animals to survive and thrive is with one another. And so that makes a lot of sense. And then the comparison in a way that's helpful of like, I thought that was my toughest day, but then I made it through this other day. And so if I can make it through these I'm putting these in my bank to kind of remind myself I can do this and I can get through all of this. It's funny, we're having this conversation today. Yesterday I was in a book club and we met online. I'm not actually positive what everyone, what everyone's profession is in there, but I know that there's quite a few medical providers. And somebody read a trauma-based book and we ended up having a conversation about that. And she said that she read it because she's a medical provider and she wants to know how to better Ooh. take care of her patients. And one of the girls in the group asked me, you know, as the mental health person, what can we do to make our work with our patients in the medical field more informed? And Mm -hmm. so we had a conversation about a lot of the things that you and I are talking about. It's the way in which you talk to people, creating space to give them time. Like I know that our medical system is very go, go, go. And doctors are not allotted a lot of time when they're working for a bigger organization. But just the slowing down and acknowledging there's a human in front of you that has emotions. So we have a little bit of that conversation. And I'm wondering for you, what would you say to the women I spoke to yesterday and to anyone who's listening that is attached to the medical world? So even before getting on the phone with you today, I'm calling a local hospital because I'm high risk for breast cancer. I have to get MRIs every year, which are already not fun. Like getting an MRI (laughs) sucks. They're so loud. And I'm in there. I'm literally in the machine complaining. Like, how have we not figured out how to make this less loud? It sounds like you're in a freaking like battle zone. Like it sounds like Mm -hmm. there's gunshots. It's insane. So you're there. And I'm like, this is so loud. You have to lay there with your boobs in this like container that presses them together. And by the way, don't move for 40 minutes. Like 
I'm like, how did we even get here? But on top of that, this happened in June and I'm calling them. I don't have time to do this. You don't have time to do this. Like I'm calling them. I'm speaking to like 70 different people. Okay, 70. It's really, really, it's probably nine, but it felt like 70. Nine is is still too many. It's too much. And I'm fighting with them about why the same service was covered at 100% last year. And this year it's $2,400. So I have to call the insurance company. I have to call them. And then they tell me, the billing department tells me, listen, if you just pay this right now, we'll give you 30% off of it. Fine. That was like a savings of $700. And then I still get a bill for $700. So then I have to call back. So not just the medical, not just I'm asking you, what can people do? Not just the doctor, but the billing department that works for the hospital system. Like what are things that all of them can do when considering that they're working with someone on the other end? who's not coming to the hospital for a vacation. Like we're coming because something's wrong, you know? What are your thoughts? Yeah, gosh, so many things. What you're saying, it's so relatable, not just with myself, but I'm sure many people who are listening or the the nature of being human is that our bodies are really fragile and they are so incredibly mysterious and beautiful. But in that, there's a lot that we still don't, understand about them and even the things that we do understand there's yes. these these flawed systems in which we can try to manage them mm-hmm. and in the conversations that I've had with people especially on the phone the first thing I ask is what their name is you know often they'll be like hi I'm Amanda and I'm working today with Blue Cross Blue Shield how can yes. I help you like and I'll say I'm sorry can you repeat your name for me so yes. I address them by name right connect at I- the beginning Connect at the beginning. And then in the harder conversations I have had, when, you know, my MRIs have been denied or not approved in time, which then throws off the whole schedule of when I can see my sarcoma specialist, when I get my medication, things like that, I will often level with them. And I will say to them, honestly, I understand that this is just Tuesday for you. And I don't want to shoot the messenger. I don't want to make this about you are hurting me as a human being one-on-one, just the two of us. Right. But I'll say, if you have any power at all to pass along to the other folks around you, this is literally a matter of life and death for many people. And it's so hard that I have to spend 40 minutes on the phone just to be connected to the proper person. and. I want these answers because I have things I want to do in life. <laughs> yeah. So whatever you can pass along to, you know, I say to them, whatever you can pass along to a higher, po- like powers that be mm-hmm. higher ups, please let them know that this system is failing people. And this is, this is personal to me in the way that I'm impacted. And I once had such an incredible response from a woman who totally got it. And I felt like she was really empathizing with me. And I said, you know, what else can I do? You know, what else? I was, I was nearing a breaking point and I said, this is so hard. And this is not your fault. You did not create this situation. Please tell other people, but like, what else can I do? Mm-hmm. And, and she said, you know, I guess just continue to fight the fight. And she was as weary as I was. Yeah. So anytime you can really connect with someone on a personal level, when they ask me how I'm doing, I'll, I'll often comment on the weather around me. I'll say, well, you know, it's rainy here in New Jersey. 
I hope you have better weather where you are, Mm -hmm. right? Recognizing that, that they would potentially be in another location. And sometimes they start chatting. Yeah, well, I'm in Sacramento and it's hot. Uh, We could use some rain. And those small ways that we establish a connection build into something more powerful, right? Where you have another human being who is maybe understanding your plight a little bit more, or maybe not, but at least you've planted the seed of that, right? At least you've been like, hi, I just want you to know that I'm a human being first and foremost. And I think the more that you mention that they see themselves also as human beings Mm -hmm. within this greater system. And I do just want to shout out, there are so many incredible medical providers and my sister's an oncology nurse. And, you know, she worked inpatient for a long time and now she's working in pediatrics. And so I also really try to express my sincere gratitude for people who are doing a really good job, who are saying like, hey, I'll get this through for you on Tuesday. And I'll say, is there someone I can give you a shout out to? Can I send an email? Yes. Can I leave a message for someone? And I've done that before where they've connected me through and I've been like, listen, I've complained about when I've been disturbed before. I want to let you know this person really went above and beyond for me. And I can't tell you what a difference that makes in my life. So honoring the good stuff as well as, you know, the hard and challenging stuff. Yeah, I, I feel like I maybe stood on my soapbox a little bit. And ranted, no, so I hope that's that really answers no, your question. It does. And it's perfect because it hits both sides. So what I'm hearing on the provider side, whether you're a medical professional or you're someone who works with a medical institution in whatever level, know that seeing the person, connecting with the person, and just validating, like, I see you, Mm -hmm. I hear you, I recognize your person, that goes so much further than any of the other things. And and it's not something that takes much time either. So that's the thing I'm hearing. But the other thing is you kind of answered my other question, which was, When you are on the side of being a patient who has to really advocate for themselves and you don't have a lot of steam left in your tank because you're trying to live your life in the best way that you can because you're dealing with this stupid diagnosis in the first place. You don't have the steam. You don't have the time. You don't have the energy. And so what can you do? And I hear that that ends up being this, the connection ends up being reciprocally twofold. I can see you as a person and I'm recognizing that you're in the grind as well. You're here showing up doing this job. And probably a lot of times getting a lot of crap for it because you work for a system that the system itself needs help as opposed to having really good people in those seats to help do it. When those people might be like, I can't believe they're doing this to Christina again. She's already called me 70 times. We need to be able to help this girl. They might be just as frustrated, but it becomes beneficial to both of you by trying to really gravitate towards this place of just recognizing and honoring human to human connection. Like we are all suffering in some way. And so when Mm -hmm. we can remember that there's somebody on the other side of that phone that's going through their own things as well, that ends up being a benefit in both ways. It kind of keeps that going. So I think you were right on it. My last question is when you know somebody who's going through a really tough diagnosis, be it cancer or, you know, it, it can really be anything. What are the things to not say to them? Because I'm sure you've heard a lot of that. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, and I'm so glad you said, you know, it can be cancer. It can be other things because like grief is grief, right? And the human experience means that when we love people and they suffer, we suffer as well. So it can be Alzheimer's. It can be the loss of a parent. And that collective grief is something that we can all connect through and tap into. I would say you say things like, 
I'm so sorry. That sounds so hard. That those have been the best situation, best conversations I've had. That just sounds so hard. Mm-hmm. Validating what I'm going through, or I'm mad at this with you. I am so I'm angry for you. You know, like really, I would say the best thing you can do is you know read, listen to podcasts like this about having just how to have those conversations sure. and kind of practicing them in in our heads even you know and then not saying things like well it could be worse or at least like strike the words at, at least, least anything from, it's out yes get rid of at it at least anything is saying uh what you're going through could be worse yes. and you're not you know you're not in a bad enough situation i i would not say anything especially if there's a cancer diagnosis like yeah mm-hmm, my grandmother have can- had cancer and she died you know, like anytime you, uh, the number of people who have said other comments, yeah, don't comment on, and this is just a general rule in life. Don't comment on people's bodies. And that goes both ways, right? Well, you look great. Right. And that is so well-meaning. And like, I love a compliment, but it might be a day where I am in excruciating pain and I feel terrible. And my response is going to be, well, yeah, appearances can be deceiving or you look so healthy. Our bodies are really good at hiding problems sometimes, you know, has been my response. And I've had an experience where someone, you know, made a comment when I was talking about my nausea and they said, well, at least you, you know, you can lose some weight. And I was like, oh, no, that's not where my brain is. And we shouldn't talk about people's bodies in a way that asserts diet culture. (laughs) There were so many levels with that one. And that one I just had to walk away from. Yeah. It was like, hmm. And I think also comparison. When I talked about fatigue, I've had parents say like, oh, well, you don't know tired because you don't have children. Like once you have kids. And that also is assuming that, you know, in many cancer situations, like fertility is a massive challenge. So all of those things, not to say the best things I've had said to me are or, or asked of me how can I be a friend to you right now? Or instead of saying like, let me know if you need anything saying, you know, I'm running to Trader Joe's. Is there anything that you need? Or just straight up saying, I made extra lasagna. I'm going to drop it off on your porch. And remembering that your friend is, or your loved one is still your friend and your loved one. And they're going to want to, you know, talk about what they've binged on Netflix. And so also seeing them beyond the diagnosis, again, going back to this, like being human connection thing. Not just asking them about their illness. They might really want to talk about it or they might have a day where they don't want to talk about it. Right. And I've, I'm really grateful for the models that I've had of people who have loved me really, really well. And I have learned, I think by now, how to respond to people who have caused me some degree of discomfort. When in doubt, Google it. When yeah. in doubt, just be like, hey, Google, what should I say to someone yeah. whose parent is going through dementia? Yeah. You know, what do I say to someone who just lost a child and really preparing, like I said, that conversation in your head, because sometimes that beats out the uh, awkwardness <laughs> yes. of, of the face-to-face interaction and the panic of, oh, what do I say now? Yeah. Thank you so much. I feel like there's a wealth of information in the show that hits a lot of different things. I know that people are going to get a lot out of it. So again, just thanks for coming on and being willing to share your story, not only here, but also you can find Christina on Instagram at Girl Meets Cancer and girlmeetscancer.com where she shares more of her stories on her journey. So please give her a follow and show her some love because we all need it. 
I will see everyone next week again. Thank you, Christina, for being a guest on Tea Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Jaylene. This was wonderful. All right. That's today's episode, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Tea Talk. I hope that your cup of tea is full today and that you were able to pull something out of this for yourself. If you know someone that needs to hear this episode, please send it their way. And let me know what you're thinking by sending me a message on Instagram. I love hearing from you all. And make sure to follow the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And if you are loving what you're hearing, please leave me a review and a rating. It would mean so much. All right, friends, take good care and I will see you next time.